Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today, I have with me Jim Sedicase, author, entrepreneur, entrepreneur, carpet cleaner, extraordinaire, and uh, science fiction enthusiast. He goes by many names, but to me, he's Pops. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Pops. And uh, first off, I just wanted to ask you with, with uh, the initial question, what is it like to be on your favorite child's podcast? <laughs> it's going it's to feel good. <laughs> you never stop, do you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got to. But uh, so I wanted to start with a, a little plug for, your, for some of your books. Uh, how many books Thank have you. you written so far? Well, probably... Um... I don't know, maybe 120, but I think probably only 100 or maybe 105 are available for uh, for sale right now. When when did you start writing uh, like books? Um, I think the copyright on my first book. Um, you know, I sent you that information, so um, I, I'm guessing, but I, I would say 10 years ago. Okay. But you, you've been writing short stories for a long time, longer than uh, 10 years. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. probably uh, when I first got married, and that was, I don't know, um, you know, close to 40 years ago. Wow. Well, do you remember that first one that you got paid for? So I think someone sent you a check, yes. right? And it was, do you, yes, do you, that was just, wonderful. Yeah, tell us about it that. Was, it was $9.57, and back then my pen name was um, – Frank Fetishaw, and there's a funny story to that that we don't have to go into. <laughs> yeah. But so they made out the check, and then I realized, well, I can't cash this because the bank won't doesn't know who Frank Fetishaw is. So I hid it in a bunch of other checks and just ran it through the bank, and they cashed it. And then I I took a picture and I framed it, and somewhere I've got this framed picture. You know, uh, it was uh, Spaceways Weekly. It was an e-zine. And the check was made out, you know, to nine dollars and some odd cents. So I thought, if I ever feel like nobody ever loves me, I can look at that framed picture and say, somebody loved me nine dollars worth and yeah. fifty-seven cents. Well, back then, nine dollars—that was like a thousand dollars because it's so. Ancient. No, no. I actually I took the nine dollars and I bought Australia. So yeah, it was an incredible <laughs> amount of money. That's and good. I own Australia, just in case you didn't know. Yeah. So, uh, so. You- you love sci-fi. How did that start? How did how did that passion for science fiction begin? Well, it really began um, when I was a child. When I was four years old, my mother got me a a rocket ship hobby horse. They had they had hobby horses you'd get on a horse and you'd ride, but the one she got me on the sides had um, white and red uh, uh, rocket ship. So I rode on that and I rode out to the stars and. And I really enjoyed it. And then I had a dream that I had a full-size white and red rocket ship on the lawn. And um, 
and then as I was growing up, uh, I didn't grow up loving God. I, I grew up in a, a religious home, but I didn't really, I didn't know the Lord. I didn't love God. And uh, when I was maybe eight or nine years old, I was playing in the in the alley behind my house, and uh, it was a it was a limestone crushed limestone gravel uh, alleyway, and in the middle was a strip of chamomile. It just grew wild there, and mm -hmm. I looked down one day, and in the midst of the chamomile was a tiny silver rocket, and it was heavy metal. There was no markings on it, and it was so wonderful. It was it was dark gray metal with beautiful silvery uh, aluminum. Um, fins and it was so wonderful i looked up to heaven and i said thank you i, I mm. knew then it was a gift from god so uh you know i flew that in my imagination through jungles and until i lost it and when i lost it i thought maybe it's time for somebody else mm. to uh you know to find it and so god in his sensitivity knew that rocket ships would speak his love to me and that's why you know, to me, rocket ships have always been a symbol uh, of God's love for me. So, you know, I started um, reading. And, and another thing about science fiction is it's an escape. I mean, <clears throat> it's it's escape from reality. And uh, like, you know, Captain Kirk in Star Trek, he was always off on some unknown adventure and exploring new worlds. And so rocket ships resent, uh, represented, um, you know, life and experience and uh do I have time to tell you about those reoccurring dreams or you want to hear about those? Yeah, dreams? yeah, I want to hear them. Hit me. Okay. So so as a young man, I, I didn't grow up, you know, loving or honoring God, but I would have these reoccurring dreams. And in one of them, I was in my parents' car and we'd look up in the sky and there was this slowly revolving um, flying saucer, UFO, and it was stationary in one place and it was slowly spinning like it was spinning in the wind. And the world knew that flying saucer was there. Hmm. And nobody knew why it was there. But in my heart, I knew why it was there. It was there waiting for me. Now, it was up just below the clouds and far above the treetops. So it was impossible to get to. But I knew I was going to get into that because the spaceship was waiting for me. And once it had me, it would take off. Mm -hmm. So then I would have another reoccurring dream about... Um, a blimp, a, a dirigible, and it was it was late, late at night, and it was slowly gliding down above the alley, you know, by my house, behind my house, and there were two cables hanging down from it, and there was a chair, a, a bucket seat from a car suspended from the end of the cables, and I had to dream two nights in a row, and I knew the third night would be my last night to have this dream, and I knew what the cables and the chair meant. That dirigible had let down the blimp, or let down the, the chair for me. Hmm. And if I could find my way into the chair, it would pull me up into the ship and I would begin um, a life of adventure and excitement. So the third night I had the dream, I managed to climb up in these trees. And as the chair is, is you know, brushing the tops of the treetops, I jumped in and I ate a few branches along the way because it still hadn't gone up. Yeah. But then it pulled me up, and then the dreams were over. And, you know, God still gives people dreams. And it wasn't for years that it thought to me that I should pray to God and say, God, what do those dreams men mean? And he made it really clear that the UFO that was 
the same color as my hobby horse, the same color as my rocket ship. It was white with red trim. The UFO and the and the, the blimp, the dirigible, were the same thing. They were God. God was mm. calling me out of my life. And if I would leave everything behind, I could share in his life. And so when I was 19, I, I, uh, well, I had a big dope party. And my landlord wanted me out of there. And, you know, my life was terrible. It was just, it was the kind of life you have if you don't have God. So there yeah. were ups and downs, but overall it was black and it was darkness. And, and, and the devil was a big part of my life, you know, although I didn't really know it. So I decided I would go to California. So I started hitchhiking. And along the way, I kept on running into Christians. And, uh, you know, little by little, they tell me about God. And I ended up in this Christian commune. And, you know, I started growing and learning about God. And, and God warned me. He said, don't go back home yet, because if you do, what you have will leak out. It'll, it'll hmm. dissipate. and You won't have it. So I stayed in the commune for two or three years, got a good dose of God, and came back a changed person, came back a person who loved and feared and wanted to worship God. Yeah. So, so God showed me that those, what those dreams were, it was, it was really my last chance to get out. And a week before I left for California, I said, I've got some money saved up. I want to, want to start my new life. You know, California is where all the, all the beautiful girls are. It's a brand new start. And immediately I had a black depressing thought that said, man, you were born in this town. You were raised in this town. You're going to die in this town. You ain't never leaving this town. Hmm. And a moment later, like a slap in my face, was another thought. And it was crystal clear. And it said, if you don't get out next week, you will never get out. And the next week, I was hitchhiking, and I began my adventure. And at the time, I didn't realize that the devil and God were fighting over my soul. And so you getting out, that that's you running up the trees, just barely making it, jumping on, grabbing on yes. to... Uh, to the seat. I love that pops. Yeah. I want to talk, I want yeah, to talk more you. about that because um, I love that God speaks to you through science fiction and rocket ships. I think that's awesome. Yes. So I want to touch Thank on you. that in a, in a little bit, but uh, I want to talk a little bit more science fiction generally, and then we'll get back to your story. Yeah. Yes, so please. the, uh, you know, movies have the Oscars, you got golden globes and Grammys. What's the Oscar of the sci-fi community? Well, there's three, but the preeminent one is called the Hugos, and it was uh, named after uh, a publisher and a scientific inventor, and um, in truth, uh, a scoundrel named <laughs> Hugo Gernsback. And he was one of the first ones to start publishing science fiction stories. He wasn't an author himself, but he gave so many giants of science fiction their first opportunity. Um, mm. And this was, uh, you know, back in the 30s and 40s. And when this organization, the Hugo Awards, finally came into existence years later, they, they dedicated the silver rocket ship to Hugo Gernsback, and they named it the Hugos. And the first Hugo ever was given in 1953 or 54 to an author, probably my favorite author in the world, uh, Alfred Bester, hmm. B-E-S-T-E-R. And um, his... Um, his book that won the first um, uh, Hugo was called, um, it was either called The Demolished Man or The Stars My Destination. Uh, I don't remember, but those were is two of his. Those are two different books, right? Two different books, yeah. but one of those two won the first award. 
And okay. years ago, I, I, I read it and, you know, I've given you a copy, I've given Gabe a copy. And, and the gist of the story is uh, a slug, a, a low down, low class man evolves and changes and becomes actually a, a Superman or a Messiah. And Messiah mm-hmm. themes are the strongest. Somebody who is nobody evolves and changes and becomes more than he is. And it's truly my life story. I was a, I was a slug. I was, you know, I was a turd and God changed me and, and made me the man that I am today. And, you know, and, you know, every day I try to reflect back the image of my, my creator, my savior, the Lord Jesus yeah. Christ. I, I love those stories too. And I am sure that's because I'm your son, but the, the idea of someone being pressed and, you know, it's a cliche now, but you talk about coal being under pressure and turning yes. into a diamond. But there's a reason right. it's cliche because we love those stories. You know, we, uh, yes. I don't want to say his name because I don't know, but there's a guy that we knew from church who had a pond and I'll go play with his frogs. Don't say his name, but he was a, he was a wino. He was, uh, you know, he was, he was on the street. He was a wino. He was a drunkard. Yeah. And then God got a hold of his life and more and more pressure and squeezed him and turned him into multimillionaire. And it's yeah. not, that's what God does. He, he didn't make you and me multimillionaires or anything like that, but he, Darn. yeah, not yet until this podcast hits and then we'll see. Right. Right. That's it. Then, you know, but let it's so, it roll. I love those stories so much. And I would say that was you. Um, you were, you're one of 10 kids. And then, uh, so, so grandma adopted 10 kids. She couldn't have any kids of her own. And so she got a bunch of kids of her own. And then how many, how many, um, foster kids would you say? 33. <laughs> That's crazy. It so, was crazy. And, and you, you said, you've told me for you were the only Brown kid in all of Brookfield growing up. Oh, was that a draft? What a burden to bear. I was the only Brown kid and, you know, kids will pick on each other. You know, you have yellow hair, I, you know, whatever. So, so there was two brown kids in my grade school. There was me and Audrey, and Audrey was beautiful, so she yeah. got a pass. So <laughs> it all came down to me. Yeah. And uh, you know, I won't repeat on here the names they called me, but just use your imagination and the yeah. terrible names that people will, especially young people, will call you. You know, those became mine. But it's interesting how God used that because mm-hmm. I was a little brown kid. They were all bigger than me, and I couldn't beat them up. I would have loved to blown them up, you know, yeah. blown up them and their families, but I couldn't. So I learned to adapt to survive by developing a thick skin and having a sense of humor. Yeah, I'm the little brown kid. Yeah, I'm the idiot. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. So God used that pressure and that, you know, whatever it was, that, that meanness to make me into a happy person because I yeah. learned – you know, to not let the stuff get me. Yeah, sometimes things get me, but but God used that to develop my my character. And and overall, today I'm a happy guy. People like being around me because hmm. I'm a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, I, I'm the party. Well, that's true. And uh, I'm a little sad that you didn't wear your blinky uh, bow tie for us. <laughs> but, uh, next time you come on, you're gonna have to wear that. Uh, so. That that's getting back to that that theme, like so. God God ordained your life. He he planned out things to happen. He's shaping and molding you the whole time. And uh, I want to go. You, you sent me a list of your favorite, your top ten favorite sci fi stories. And hold on for a second. I, hold on. I've got a. I'm getting a call that I want to decline. Right. Okay, go ahead. All right. So um, so I want to just run through. I got the list here in front of me. But 
that Good. that first story that uh, the story of God pressing you like a piece of coal and turning you into a diamond. That's very much the story of the the novel you already mentioned by Alfred uh, Bester, "The Star Is My Destination." Yes. So, is that your top favorite? Is that is that number one on the list? You know, it used to be, but if you have that list, uh, far and away the the best story. Um, probably that I've ever read in my life other than the Bible is the 11th story. And um, you have that title in front of you. Yeah. That um, is uh honorable. Oh, no, honorable mention. You said, is it the birthday party? I, yes. Yeah. That one far and away outshines everything else I've ever read in my life. That's and it was written by a non-Christian. James M. Kane. Yes. He was the author of uh, the postman always rings twice. You want to yeah. go into that, or you want to you want to work let's, our way down to that? Yeah, let's work down to it. So let's start with the okay, stars. My destination. Um, why, why this one? Why do you like this one? We've, we've already talked about it a little bit, but okay. What's the story? So it's a story of a man who was a slug. He was a he was a brute beast. He was dumb. He was unintelligent. Uh, he was an oiler on a spaceship in the future, and really, he was me. You know, I had no skills. I had no talents. I was a little brown kid. I had probably undiagnosed attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity. So I did really poorly in school. It took me five years just to get out of high school, five mm-hmm. years to get through college. But I was having kids along the way then. So that could be excused. So he <laughs> was a failure at everything he ever tried. But then an event in his life, his flying saucer or his dirigible came down. And I think the passage in the Bible that says the key was in the door. And when it turned, it would open uh, the door to eternity or Holocaust and Holocaust. And, and that was my life. And, and so I could really relate, you know, wanting to be like him, traveling among the stars and wanting to evolve and change and, and become, you know, Christ-like. Yeah. And I thought, I thought that's interesting, too. He started off as this brutish man. And then the thing that really changed him um, – did the ship break down or did someone blow up his ship? Do you remember? Someone blew up his ship and planted him with enough oxygen to send out a distress call. So he was baked. So when the people would come to save him, the ships in waiting would blow because there was a war going on. And and Bester was inspired by that story because during the time of his writing, uh, I think it was World War II or something, but two sides both saw this poor, helpless shipwreck guy in this raft and he cried out to people passing by to save him and each side was afraid that he was bait and they would get blown up so the poor guy was on the raft forever wow because everybody was afraid that he was bait to kill him yeah and i think the guy finally did get off the raft that's good so so uh gully foil is the the main character he's this this brute of a man and uh the the one word that's like terrifying uh, in from that book that that haunts me is scuttling. Do you remember that they the the crew yes, got scuttled, yes, and scuttling yes. is like when they just dropped everyone out into space, right? Yes, yes, that's it. Terrifying. It, it all the time. I think of this word scuttling because it's a it's a pretty uh, just normal word, but when you yes. see it in context, they're terrible. So he yeah, it's a visceral. The thing that that makes him. Uh, that starts him on this journey to to being this uh, messianic type figure is that he can jaunt. Can you can you explain the the deal with yeah. jaunting? Yeah, jaunting is thought teleportation. 
Um, at the time, uh, you know, when he's writing the story, there were limitations. Um, even the best mind transporter guy, the jaunter, could only travel a thousand miles. But Gully Foyle, this chokes me up. Um, <laughs> Gully Foyle could transport through space and time. Yeah. And oh, know, I didn't know about time too. There was there was no limits. Yeah. So what he at the end of the book, it, he's opening up the door to our limitless potential. And, you know, that brings back a passage in the book of Genesis. When the people were building Babylon, the Bible says the Lord came down and he observed the city. Tower and, of Babel. Uh, quote from Babel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. It was, uh, it was Babel. But um, uh, God speaking to himself. And I'm going to quote King James, even though you always like to poke fun at me, uh, because I grew up and back then there was only King James yeah. in the 70s. So the Lord said, behold, the people are one and the language is one. Now this they begin to do. I'm choking up again. Now, nothing which they imagine shall be impossible for them. Therefore, let us go down and confound their language that they will leave off building the city. So what God had said was, when you have people who are one, and they're able to communicate, and they're of one mind and one heart, nothing shall be impossible for them. Mm. And, you know, God doesn't mince words. God's not given to hyperbole or exaggeration. So when he said nothing will be, you know, prohibited from them, he meant nothing. And that meant everything, thought, teleportation, reaching the stars, Etc. And and really, in a sense, that's a foreshadow of what Gully Foyle at the end of the book offered humanity. Mm. I offered you limitless possi po possibilities to be able yeah. to able to travel through space and time without even a rocket ship. And yeah. you know, because you know, we use a fraction of our mind. You know, you and I use probably ninety five percent, but most that's other right. people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most other people, brains, yeah. you know, we, we use a small portion. So Gully was saying, this is the key. This yeah. is the answer. Okay. Well, that, that, that's interesting too, the, the Tower of Babel thing, because it sounds like God's kind of being a jerk. Like, what? Humanity is doing a great job. They're going to do all these things. So God's going to come down and confound them. And I think that the whole point of that is that humanity wasn't set on God. They weren't set on doing godly things. They were unified and they were able, they were going to do a bunch of ungodly things. They were going to make all sorts of stuff and be unified against God. And yes. uh, so God's coming down and confounding their language was a mercy to humanity. And now yeah. after this side of the gospel, we can unify and we can come together and we can be God's church and unify together for him, for his glory. Right. Yeah. Good. Well so, said. So um, moving on then to uh, Monster by A.E. A. Van Voigt. Can you tell us about Monster? Yes. Oh, well, um, Monster, again, it's, it's really a messiah. Um, these, uh, these jellyfish-like aliens land on this forsaken planet, and all life is gone. But they've got a, a tool for resurrecting the long dead. So they resurrect three or four different men from the time of the pharaohs, and the time of uh, the gas combustion engine. And finally, they resurrect a man who was alive at the end of their civilization. And uh, they find out the man 
is more advanced than they ever will be. And so they decide he's a monster and they have to kill him. But every attempt to kill him is futile because the man with his mind is able to thought teleport. Hmm. And so, so he becomes their adversary and his goal is, well, I'm giving the story away, but his goal, his goal is to get the resurrection equipment that they have Hmm. and to get their star charts because man had never gone beyond 90 light years of space travel, but these people have discovered an ancient secret and they can navigate the entire galaxy. So with the ability to resurrect the long dead and the star charts, man can once again roam the galaxy and this time they'll never be extinct. So again, you know, this, this man's a Messiah and he's overcoming everything that's thrown at him, you know, even death. And, you know, again, that's a type of Christ. I, I love this story because they're, they're flipping uh, Van Voigt. I think this is this is like 1939 or something. They're, he's flipping the, the story. So usually it's man comes to a, a different planet, discovers these blobby creatures, and he's got to kill them and save some woman in distress whose clothes are ripped right. off. This yes. is the jellyfish folks are coming back to Earth and resurrecting this guy. But man is actually the monster to in their yes. perspective. So it's a, yes. for the perspective of the alien invader kind of, and uh, he's end up, they end up, um, they know that he's got the documents and they know that he's got the resurrection machine. So they say for the sake of our species and the rest of, is this, they, they, they plan to drive into the sun with him on board. Is that right? Right, right. The, the line is, um, you know, they aim their ship into the heart of a blue white mm. sun. And mm. that is, that is such a beautifully phrased thing. I, I'm sure I stole it for two or three stories, you know, into the heart of a blue white sun. Yeah. But um, uh, many people believe that is, um, that is the best science fiction story that that's ever been written. It's mm. just so amazing. And well, he, Voight was amazing. The the man who is resurrected, who stole the charts and everything, he outsmarts them. Doesn't, doesn't he jaunt back off the ship? Yes, he does. And, and he does this, after they've broken their controls mm. and they can't escape yeah. the, you know, going into the heart of, you know, and it, it re- they realized, oh, he's not even on here anymore. And so he will live and yeah. we can't tell our own people because if we sent a radio beam back to the motherland, he would follow it and discover our homeland. Yeah. And so he outsmarts them all the way. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. A surprise yeah. ending. And, and those are the best. That's something that I try to do in many of my stories, give you a surprise flip, a surprise ending. And you'd say, I did not see that coming because we're jaded and we've seen it all. We've experienced it all. So if somebody can pull the wool over on us, like the movie, the sting, when that first came out, it won all these awards because everybody was taken in and the surprise ending. It's like, Whoa, dude, you sucked (laughs) me in. I, I never saw it coming. Well done, sir. Well done. Yeah, yeah. So, so moving on to number three, Black Destroyer by the same author, A. E. A. E. Van Voigt. Yes. Okay. So, um, these explorers and the spaceship, the Beagle, um, which was taken from the ship that Darwin was on, the sailing ship, when they mm-hmm. discovered the Galapagos Islands and traveled around the world discovering yeah. things. So, the Space Beagle lands on this planet, and it's pretty desolate. And they discover this ginormous, you know, elephant-sized black cat with a face full of, you know, writhing snake, you know, like an octopus tentacle. 
and they think it's semi-intelligent. So they invite it onto the ship. They put it in a cage, but they don't realize this thing is a deadly killer and it wants the phosphorus in their bones huh. you know, to live. That's its food. And so the, the, the black cat, kitty, they sometimes call it, has, has wasted the entire planet. And they were once, you know, a proud and intelligent people, but they devolved into savages. And hmm. so this creature they, they invited on the ship was the biggest savage of, of all of them. There were still these other black cats. So it starts killing the people. The, the 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 scientist and space adventures and so together they have to figure out a way to overcome this beast or he'll destroy all of them okay yeah i like it um yeah, number four here story. yeah number four is uh, more than human by theodore sturgeon yeah uh, theodore sturgeon was an amazing author um he uh he he just wrote so many intricate stories but again this is a story about a man who was uh you know probably probably retarded i don't know if that's an acceptable term but the man was mentally decapacitated yeah and you know he was just he he ended up living with these people on a farm and he hardly ever he hardly ever spoke but he had amazing latent powers within him and a series of events loosen those powers and he came together with other mutants or disformed people and together they formed a gestalt they they formed a new man hmm. and um so again it's a story of somebody who is very low progressing and evolving and changing and becoming uh, a superhuman somebody with you know powers and abilities you know far beyond and, and it speaks to our own potential you know, what we could be, you know, the Bible says in heaven, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Yeah. But I also believe that's part of our journey here. You know, we start out as little kids and we grow into develop and God has amazing potential for each of us to reach here. He wants us to grow and develop and reflect back the glory of his son yes. and you know, for you, it's learning philosophy. For me, it's writing stories that um, that you find hard to believe are inspired by God. But, Some of them. Uh, out, <laughs> outrageous, outrageous stories. And, and to sum up my stories, God gives me these outrageously creative, wild, spinning stories to nudge people closer to him. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because before I knew the Lord, I was convinced that God was boring. Now, God is many things. He is love and he is anger and he is compassionate and he is vengeance. But one attribute you will never, ever find about God is boring. He's yeah. the author of creation. So since that was my thought of God before I became a Christian, before I gave my life to Jesus, Christ. I think the Lord said, let's take this man who thought I was so boring. Let's make him the most creative man ever. And his stories will reflect my love and glory for mankind. And you know, Park, God has given me eyes to see God behind the scenes, you know, probably like nobody else. Mm. Um, I saw God in a Santana song 
called All I Ever Wanted Was to Be With You. And mm -hmm. I see God in, in the bark on a tree, and I see the lichens, and I see God in an empty field full of weeds. And for a moment, I can see those weeds as God sees them, and they're the most breathtakingly beautiful master garden that could ever be. Yeah. And I pray each day that he'll let me see more, but he doesn't. They're few and far behind. They're few and far, these, these opportunities I have to see the world through God's eyes. But I'll share one more. Yeah. I was in a grocery store, and just for a moment, God let me look across all the people. And it was kind of like there was a red light filter, a rose filter on my eyes. But I could see those people as God saw them. And I saw those people through eyes of overwhelming, all-encompassing love. And when I saw that, I said, no, you cannot look at those people like that. They are unbelieving. They are not deserving of your love. They don't even believe in you. And the Lord said, yeah, I know, but I can't help loving them anyway. Hmm. Yeah, so the, the, he he loves his image bearers, right? They're they're. Right, they're fallen. Even though that broken. image is, yeah, but, that image yeah. is broken and battered, and yeah. but but he loves the image. And, and Jesus says, it. "Yeah, Jesus says he looks. Uh, he looked on the crowd and had compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd." Yes. Yeah, and so you see that 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 God was showing you some of His compassion for humanity. Um, yeah, yeah, not yeah. not the judgment. I, I think a lot of times we get uh, God our Father and Zeus mixed up, you know, because yeah. Zeus was vengeful, and you know, if I was God the earth would look like the craters of the moon because I would have zapped so many people. Yeah, same but, here. But God is merciful. Yeah. Uh, one of my professors here at, at Trinity, uh, Dr. Van Hooser, he talks about having a, a discipled imagination. I think that that's a good technical word for like what, what you were describing, where God has given you eyes to see and he's, he's reopened your imagination and he's using it for his glory. And he's given you all sorts of crazy ideas. And a lot of times there's like this imagination that happens that you can't even put into words or it's hard to grab onto, or you have to sit down and, and lock yourself in the room to try and figure out what God's been telling you. Uh, I've had some of that too. It's, it's crazy, but I love it. Um, let's, let's keep going on the list pops. Cause the next one is uh, the last question by Isaac. Oh, Asimov. I, I want to hear from Asimov. Asimov. Okay. So you brought that one to mind and that's why it made the list. Um, uh, does it say on the list or when that story was written? Was that in the 40s, 46 or something? It says 56. Okay, so 56. So um, uh, these people build this incredibly smart computer. And, uh, and they ask it a question because they realize the second law of thermodynamics says everything is going from a state of high complexity to low complexity. The universe is running down. Mm. And the question is, how can mankind survive when all the energy is gone, when the entire universe runs down. And so the UNIVAC, the, the, the giant computer, is posed that question. And the continual answer is not enough data yet, you know, to answer the question. And so through the eons, different civilizations, different evolutions of man have, you know, asked him the question. And he keeps on saying that. So finally, the end comes and, you know, the energy in the universe has wound down and the stars have winked out. And so then 
there's nothing left. Mankind has dissipated. The universe has dissipated. It's just blackness. And finally, the machine comes up with the answer. And the machine goes, oh, yeah. And so the answer is, let there be light. And there was hmm. light. So it swings back to Genesis and the creation of everything. So the universe is recreated because uh, the Univac, you know, finally has the answer. And, you know, of course, the Univac represents God in yeah. creation. Yeah. There's a, there's a story which, which I brought this up to you because I was trying to think of a different story that's really similar. But yours is much more uh, – that, that one's much uh, more optimistic. There's a really pessimistic one by Frederick Brown. Are you familiar with Frederick Brown at all? I am not. Okay. Yeah. I he's heard probably of never heard of me either. <laughs> yeah. Well, not until this podcast pops and then it's all coming <laughs> together. So Back I had this, I had one of my favorite philosophers on a couple of pod, uh, a couple episodes ago, Jim Slagle, and he, he likes uh, sci-fi as well. And he, he told me to read this uh, short story by Frederick Brown. He said he's one of the best and uh, he writes really short, short stories. So I want to read it because it's only a couple lines here, but Please. The, it's the end. It's called the answer or just called answer. And so, um, it's got these these futuristic names, uh, Dwar Rain and Dwar Ev. So just for the folks at home, that's why I'm saying these weird names. So uh, Dwan Ev ceremoniously soldered the final connection with gold. The eyes of a dozen television cameras watched him, and the sub-ether bore throughout the universe a dozen pictures of what he was doing. He straightened and nodded to Dwar Rain. Then moved to a position beside the switch that would complete the contact when he threw it. The switch that would connect all at once all of the monster computing machines of all the populated planets in the universe, 96 billion planets, into the super circuit that would connect them all into the supercalculator, one cybernetics machine that would combine all that would combine all the knowledge of all the galaxies. Dwar Rain spoke briefly to the watching and listening trillions. Then, after a moment's silence, he said, Now, Dwar Ev. Dwar Ev threw the switch. There was a mighty hum, the surge of power from 96 billion planets. Lights flashed and quieted along the miles-long panel. Dwar Ev stepped back and drew a deep breath. The honor of asking the first question is yours, Dwar Rain. Thank you said Dwarrain. It shall be a question which no single cybernetics machine has been able to answer. He turned to face the machine. Is there a God? The mighty voice, the mighty voice answered without hesitation, without the clicking of a single relay. Yes, now there is a God. Sudden fear flashed on the face of Dwar Ev. He leaped to grab the switch. A bolt of lightning from the cloudless sky struck him down and fused the switch shut. That's it. That's the whole story. And it's terrifying. That's amazing. Yeah, it should be fuse the switch open, but that that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love those. Uh those are those are really popular nowadays because we're developing artificial intelligence and stuff like that. And yeah. there's this thing there's this thing called this the singularity when the the computers will take over. So those yeah. those stories are becoming uh, less and less science fiction and more and more science fact and terrifying. Yeah, Skynet's around the corner. That's right. All right, so uh, let's continue on here, Pop. Let's let's, let's burn through these next couple. Uh, six is why I left Harry's All Night Hamburgers by Lawrence Watt Evans. Yeah, um, an amazing story. Young high school kid is looking for a part time job, so this hole in the wall greasy spoon 
he says, well, I'll hire you, but you got to leave the clientele alone. So after midnight, the clientele, they come in rocket ships and through space-time continuums, and, and they look like aliens. And so the high school kid is doing his best not to freak out. And sometimes they pay in uh, platinum coins, um, which I stole that idea for uh, for one of my characters, uh, Jack the Nose. Jack is always paying Frankie Chocolate and platinum pieces. So the kid is getting an eyeful of the entire universe through these travelers. But the rub is these travelers has found their way through space and time, but it's a one-way trip. They can never go back to their home world. So mm. they always, so they're traveling through the multiverse. And a lot of times they, um, they find uh, worlds that are very close to theirs, but not quite the same. So the kid is given a choice to take a ride on one of these spaceships and explore the galaxy or to learn to be content with the amazing world that was here all along. And so mm. he, he chooses the latter and he starts traveling and seeing ancient runes and exotic sites and tigers and elephants. And he starts to explore the wonders that are on our earth. And, mm. and, so, and so, you know, I've written Watts Evans. Uh, he never wrote me back. But um, most people don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, next one up, uh, number seven, Night of the Cooters by Howard Waldrop. Yeah. Uh, there's another one I wrote. And, you know, maybe someday we'll be best buds. But he's a bit of a recluse. I don't even think he has a computer. Okay. Um, this is an amazing homespun story about, um, you know, this meteor comet shower. And it turns out, that they're rocket ships from Mars and these tentacle monsters are coming you know, to invade this small town in Missouri or Mississippi. So the local yokel and the sheriff have got to band together, you know, to overcome these creatures with superior weapons. And so the title comes from the sheriff and he goes, yeah, we got to take care of these cooters, you know, which is, you know, the aliens and yeah. it's hilarious. It's homespun. It, it is pure gold. It is just wonderful. Okay. Uh, next up, number eight, we're going to roll them bones by Fritz oh, uh, Lieber. Oh, this was, uh, I am in awe of this story. This story is the Mount Everest of short, concise, tight um, uh, words. It's, it's a macabre story about a miner, a skinny, tall, kind of an Ichabod crane type of miner. And he's got an exceptional throwing hand. So he can throw a piece of rock that fell out of the, out of the top of a cliff uh, right back into the place where it was. Huh. And so he likes to gamble. And he's, he's a drunkard and he's mean to his wife and his mother-in-law lives there with some cats. And so he says, uh, I'm going to go to this new gambling house that's in town. And in, in reality, the gambling house is uh, it's the doorway into hell. So he's mm. gambling against the devil himself. And uh, uh, it's, just, it's just an absolute masterpiece. And uh, the ending is a little bit confusing until you read it three or four times. Do you remember that story that I had you read about, about the talking pig? What was that called? Do you remember? Yeah. Uh, Beyond Lies the Wub, Philip K. Dick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the that ending story, it's kind of open to interpretation. I think you settled on the correct you know, thing with the author. So in that story, it's kind of open to interpretation. 
but you know the guy finds freedom in the end and it's just yeah. a masterpiece it's okay. it's an amazing story let's check that one out i, I want to come back to philip k dick when we're done with this list so yeah, yeah please number nine uh for a breath i tarry by roger zelanzi zelazny um well however it's pronounced yeah. um it's it's basically a retelling of adam and eve uh, the world has been destroyed by nuclear war and the robots um are in charge these big huge metal clanking robots are roaming the earth and they're trying to rebuild the earth and get rid of the pollution they're trying to you know reforest the, you know the worlds and clean up the oceans but there's no men left and men are still their bosses even though there's no man left so there are two great vast computers um one in the sky and his name is frost and the other one a supercomputer in antarctica and i forget what her name is but through a series of events um somehow they find a frozen cadaver in the antarctica and they bring it back to life but there's no soul so they have a living body and so frost determines that he's going to enter the body and bring the man back to life and he does hmm. and all the robots and all the machinery and computers who are against him now have to obey him uh, because he is a man he's he, evolved he, trans from, he transfers consciousness into the robot or into the person he, into the flesh yes yes so it's the reverse of, yeah. of what we call evolution so yeah. the computer wow. in, inhabits the man but the last line of the story is so potent, uh, poignant. It says they called him Frost and they called her, you know, whatever her name is, but it's Adam and Eve. They're starting over again. Wow. And the, and the guy, it's a robot. It's a robot's consciousness that. Right. But, but he becomes a man. Yeah. And in truth, that, that story inspired the second best story I've ever written. You know, once I told the Lord, um, that the second best story I've ever written, um, I said, I'll never write a story that good. And the Lord says, boy, do you lack faith. <laughs> but um, the first best story that I've ever written was The Fur Coat to Die For. And it's a retelling of Adam and Eve, you know, losing paradise. And it's so, so yeah. sad. We, we, uh, were, we were like this close, Pops. We were so close. The 10th story here. <laughs> on your list is the fur coat to die for and other stories by Frankie chocolate. There's going to be some grand reveal that your pen name is Frankie's chocolate. <laughs> you just, that's me. Couldn't get there. Yeah. So that's you. It's me. So go ahead. Let's go to number 10, the fur coat to die for and other stories, but let's talk about that. That specific short story. Okay. So while writing this story, I truly felt God standing over my right shoulder, guiding my hand, use mm. this word, use that word. And the ending, uh, I'm tearing up again. Uh, and when I think about God, I often tear up um, because he's so precious to me. The ending was just as much a surprise to me as it was to anybody. And the story was so powerful. I sent it to my friend Barry, who's a missionary in Italy. And he loved it so much, he asked for permission, and he turned it into a play. Whoa, I didn't and, know that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So in... Somewhere in Milan, <laughs> the name Frankie Chocolate is revered. Yeah. And that's the only place. <laughs> so, so again, it's a story about Adam and Eve losing paradise. 
and how God provided for them. Uh, there's a story about a squirrel who's in love with a girl squirrel and the Nazi, price he has to pay. Nutsy Fagan. Fagan. Nutsy Fagan, which is a line I stole from history. Nutsy Fagan was a real guy, and probably somebody's <laughs> estate will sue me for that one. And um, there's, a, there's a story about the enemy. Um, and and uh, so it's nine short stories. And at the time, this was my first book. And I didn't realize you shouldn't put all your absolute best stories in one collection. Yeah. So I put the absolute best nine stories I've ever written in there. And I hired a guy and he put in nine amazing, amazing drawings. The drawings are probably better than my stories. But in this one, the enemy, I'm reading through the Old Testament. And God is telling the Israelites, you know, you've really blown it this time. And he says, now you'll find out what it's like to have me for an enemy. Hmm. And anybody in the world you will take as an enemy, but not God. I mean, take the devil a thousand times, but not God. So in the story, um, it's set in San Francisco, and it's foggy and dark. And Mike Anvil, um, a character <laughs> that you embodied for three of my book covers, mm -hmm. you and Jack Cooney, who's, who plays a, a huge part in my writing, you know, throughout my many years of writing. Yeah. So Mike Anvil has to face this dark alley and Mike isn't afraid of anybody, but Mike is in fear and trembling as he has to walk into this alley and little Johnny, who's almost as big and almost as brutish, he stays back. So Mike Anvil comes face to face with this huge, huge guy who makes him look like a child. And he says, Mikey, I gave you a job to do and you didn't do it. And then the, the line in the story is, um, how would you like to find out what it's like to have me as an enemy? And mm -hmm. Mike Anvil chokes up and he goes, no, sir. No, I, I, I do not want you as an enemy. I'll get right on this. And so the guy in the trench coat, in the black trench coat says, Mikey, we all die. You die. Even I died. But before mm -hmm. you die, I need you to do this job. So the story ends with Mike Anvil. Um, some guy is working on his truck mount carpet cleaner you know, machine because Mike's a carpet cleaner. And uh, he says, hey, Tommy, you got a moment? There's something I want to share. So Mike's got the New Testament. And oh, so he wow. shares the gospel. Yeah. So that's the enemy. Um, your older brother, who I love just as much as you, Joel, mm -hmm. the founder of the Think Institute, Gave me yeah, this you story. can't plug this stuff on my stuff, Pops. <laughs> he will How love much this. Did he pay you? How much did he pay you for right. that? One? The same <laughs> amount you paid that turtle to bite me and the yeah. same day bit me. That's yep. a story you'll have yeah. to go into. Yeah. So um Joel told me the story about um the unfriendly God, and, and that is shocking. And mm. it's a true story about a witch doctor who tried to call a little boy's spirit back after he, he he stepped on a poisonous animal and so i'll give the story away um the young widow uh, asked the witch doctor to bring her little boy back so the witch doctor enters the spirit world and he's chasing the child's spirit you know through the ether and he almost gets a hold of the child until something drives him back something so horrible that he can't stand it and he goes back to the widow and he's sick for three days and she nurses him and they fall in love and 
and she becomes pregnant again. But one day she asks him, she goes, my husband, what was the horror that was so strong that you couldn't bring my son back to me? What drove you back? And the witch doctor said, as the child entered the city in the sky, it was singing. Hmm. The singing drove me away. Wow. So the child, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And as a Christian, I believe that when I die, Jesus sends angels to bring me hmm. to the throne of God. <laughs> and that's a true story hmm. that uh, the witch doctor could not bring the child back because as yeah. he approached as he approached heaven, there was so much singing and his heart was so dark, he turned back from the light. Yeah. So that was a powerful story. Yeah. And then uh, Tommy's big hit, Gabriel was playing baseball and this poor, scared little kid came up to the bat on the opposite team. And Tommy was me. Tommy was a failure at everything. Hmm. <laughs> Again, I choke up. Yeah, when I come, these are all your, when I come, these are all your best ones here, pops. Well, I choke up when I come close to God, and God mm. is in this story, and uh, so the coach says one line to Tommy, and it brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> um, he says, "Come on, Tommy, hit that ball." Like we all know you can. And the mm. truth is, nobody on Tommy's team believes he will ever hit the ball. <laughs> because Tommy has been a failure through life. And he never wanted to be on the baseball team. And it's been an, an, un, it's been an undying humiliation to be on this team. And now he has the last out. The bases are loaded. It's the bottom of the ninth. And he's about to fail once again. And in a, in a moment, God stopped time. <sighs> Give me a minute. <sighs> yeah. In a moment, God stopped. <laughs> God like a story, stopped. <laughs> yeah. In a moment. God in heaven stopped time and said, pray for Tommy. Pray for Tommy. So I, so I prayed for Tommy and God started time back up. And Tommy had the hit of his life. Mm. He shot that ball out of the park. <laughs> and I was in awe. I said, what just happened? And Tommy was redeemed. Yeah. It's a story of redemption. And even though his team lost the game, God was glorified in that moment. Yeah. And that story was called Tommy's Big Hit. Yeah. And that so, was an amazing story. <laughs> so you guys have seen my my dad's uh, passion here for these stories. Go buy The Fur Coat to Die For. You can get that on Amazon, Dad. Yeah, you'll have to look for it because when you type in Frankie Chocolate, a lot of weird things will 
But if you can, sure. if you type in the fur coat to die for, you'll okay, find it. It's yeah. it's it's under fifty pages. There's nine great illustrations, nine yeah. mediocre stories. Uh, but go, it's go my best the, work. Go by, those, go by those stories. He put them all together. He messed up and put all his best ones in there. But the the one I okay. my favorite story or one of my favorite stories at least pops of yours that I want to I want to talk about next. Uh, it's not not as deep, not as uh, theologically deep, emotionally deep, but it's called the Galactic Poo. <laughs> you know, you know, we're talking about science fiction. Oh, That's probably your favorite uh, science fiction story of yours. So, can you uh, can you tell us a little bit about where the story came from, and then tell oh. us? The story? Well, you inspired the story because oh, when you were in high school, Mama was dropping you off at you know at Glenbard North. And you and her. I went to Glenbard East, so I don't know why. Glenbard East. Okay. See, you know, when you get old, you know, it's it's all hazy. Yeah. And your name is Tommy. So yeah. you you saw a UFO over the football field, and you didn't even tell me about it. You and her saw it, and I, it was probably six months before I wormed it out of you, and you were both chagrined at seeing it, and I was going, where is the justice? I have been a true believer in Stanley and UFOs and outer space ever. I've never even seen a weather balloon. Let me turn, let me decline that. It's yeah. a scam. Um, I've never even seen a weather balloon and you guys who didn't want to see a UFO saw a UFO. So I thought, this isn't right. And then I thought about your brother, Gabriel. Gabriel is has many gifts, but one of his gifts is prayer. Mm-hmm. And when he prays, when you and I pray, we might get it, we might not, whatever. But when Gabriel prays, heaven shakes. It's like God is sit, sitting on the edge of his chair waiting for Gabriel to pray so he can say yes. So I thought, I've got a secret weapon. So I said, Gabriel, I want I want to offer you something I want you to pray for, and I don't want you to judge me. Yes, Father, what is it? I want you to pray that I'll see a UFO. Okay, Dad, I'll pray that. And then I got to thinking, it wasn't. It wasn't minute. all that simple. I talked to him the other day, actually, and he's like, "You know how weird it is to pray that your father will be abducted by a UFO." You know, but I love the guy. I want to be. I was there. <laughs> I was there when he said that. That was over so dinner, funny. one of our dinners. Uh, so but, but let me let me continue. Yeah. So Gabriel, non-judging, says, "Okay, I'll pray." And then I realized I'm thinking too small. I've heard about spaceships coming to Earth. And they pick up people, and they go back to Alpha Centauri in 50 minutes. They have lunch, and they get them back. And it's like, well, I'm thinking too small. So then I tell Gabe, Gabe, look, I'm going to change my prayer. What's that, Father? I don't want you to pray that I'll see a UFO. I want to. I want you to pray that I'll get to ride in a UFO. And he goes, okay, I'll pray that. And then Phil, Phil's my son-in-law. He married our daughter, your sister, my daughter, August. So Phil, who was over at the house one day, I shared the story. And he goes, Dad, you're forgetting one thing. So what's that? And he goes, you're forgetting the cost of riding in a UFO. I said, what's that? And he goes, we got to be probed. And I said, I don't want to be probed. And then I thought about it. And I thought about our little black dog, Logan. Now, Logan didn't like being probed either. But I would tell him to poop, and he wouldn't poop. So I'd get a, a wooden kitchen match, and I'd stick it up his butt. And I know you're going to be mad at me if I leave this part out. I would call it the match of love. Sorry. <laughs> they're going to come for you now, Pops. <laughs> so I would stick that match up there, and he would produce the brown soft serve, and it yeah, was yeah. magical. So 
it got to the point where I'd say, go poo-poo, and Logan would poop on demand. So Phil said, you got to be probed. And I thought, I'll bring a proxy. So Monday morning, the UFO is in my backyard. I walk up the space ramp. I grab my little black dog. I hand it to Galnax, the commander of the ship. And I say, this is my proxy. So he goes, okay. So we whip around a, a 747. We head out to, you know, past Mars and the solar. We're heading to Alpha Centauri. And so the, the duty roster says, you know, picked up, uh, you know, one human and one small brown, uh, one black alien. And, you know, probing resulted this and that. So they go to probe Logan, but Logan's not having it. So Logan scoots out of uh, their hands and he's running around the ship and they're trying to catch him and they can't catch him because he's got four legs and they've only got two. So finally, they, he, the captain says, oh, just fudge the book. So he goes, probe alien, nothing new, blah, blah, blah. But all this running around got little Logan excited. So Logan goes behind a computer terminal and does the bad thing. So then the captain comes up to me and he's a little bit chagrined. He goes, uh, excuse me, but your little black, I think your little black companion did something horrible behind that computer bank over there. And I, and I take offense and I go, oh, how do you know it was him? Maybe it was you. And he goes, oh, he goes, are you going to clean it up or not? So I said, well, give me something. So he gives me this amazing space cleaner juice. And I go, oh, so I pocket it because I'll go, I am going to make a million on this when I get back to Earth. So I clean it up. And I said, look, Galnax, I'm going to clean this up. But when we get to the home world, you're buying lunch and you're sending me back a side salad for my wife. So he goes, okay, whatever. So we go there and we have this amazing lunch. And I bring back um, your mom, this amazing side salad. She eats it and she loses five pounds. But there's a problem. You know, as, as I'm getting off the ship, Galnax says, hey, we'll do it again sometime. We'll get together. But you know how it is. Once mm. they get you off your spaceship, they never call you again. I but Galen. I think, yeah, <laughs> they're never going to come back. But I know I'm going to see Galnax and his saucer again because I look everywhere and I can't find Logan. <laughs> <laughs> that's so that's the fur coat. to No, no, that's um, Upgraded Prayers and the Galactic Poo. So <laughs> you inspired it and Phil inspired it and Gabe inspired it. And our dear little dog who passed away, Logan, Logan inspired it. And that yeah. is an absolute hoot. I think I put that. <laughs> In the poo stories, I've got a collection of just poo stories, which my mother-in-law refused to read, and they are easily the funniest work I've ever written. There's a picture of an outhouse on there, so um, I think it's called the poo stories. So if you really want to holler, I think Joel with Scruffy, when Scruffy unloaded on his, on his oh, yeah. car, I think that's in there. That so the, the, hilarious. Yeah. Because poo is very funny. It is for some people. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Pops, I wanted to finish off here. Uh, thanks for, for recounting so many of your stories and, and helping us with so many really good science fiction stories out there. I wanted to talk. Uh, we, we've been talking so much about it's come up a lot about Christianity, about God and science fiction. And um, yes. I wanted I wanted to just end on on that note. I think it's interesting to think of, the, you know, the Bible is a, a collection of books. It, you know, we say the book of the Bible, it's, it's really like a library of books of 66 books right. and there's different genres. I love thinking right. of the ancient genres in terms of modern genres. So like you could think of the book of Job as like a platonic dialogue. Plato wrote these dialogues and he's always trying to get at uh, an essence of something. So he's trying to look at justice. So he writes this. Uh, well, no, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. I'm explaining it. 
a dialogue. You, you, have, to, you have to put the cookies on a lower shelf. I'm sorry. <laughs> so Plato wrote stories. And in the stories, yes. he's trying to get at uh, a point. He's trying to teach something. He's trying to teach okay. about the essence. And it's usually about the forms, the form of justice. What is justice? What is goodness? What is beauty? So that's basically what God did in the book of Job. The book of Job is this dialogue between Job and his friends uh, about God's justice. Is is God? Is it just for Job to suffer even though he didn't do anything wrong? And then God comes and, and uh, Job is vindicated. And so... With that in mind, that we're we're looking at biblical stories in light of modern genres. What do you think about looking at Revelation as like a true science fiction or science fact? Like a <coughs> have you ever considered that before? Revelation as like science fiction? No, I, I never have. But you know, um, I do a lot of listening to the Bible in the car because you yeah. can get a whole lot, you know, while you're driving for forty five minutes. And it seems to me there's reoccurring themes in the book of Revelation. In one part, he'll say this was like this. He'll say, yeah. I saw a beast with uh, seven heads and, and these crowns. But but then another example, he'll say, I saw a lamb slain with, uh, you know, with seven crowns. And I, I forget what. But, yeah. but we know that the lamb is God. So we yeah. know this is an analogy because mm -hmm. Christ is is a man he's not a lamb though he is the lamb of god yeah so you know there's a certain amount of interpretation but in some parts of the bible in the book of revelation he explains that the incense are the yeah. prayers of the saints and so you know the book of revelation anybody who tells you oh, i've got to figure it out you know you run from that guy because you know i don't know anybody i don't think martin luther could could have explained mm. the book of revelation there or even yeah. you know anybody but it's an amazing, it's an amazing, uh, you know, story, but it's also terrifying. Yes, and that's, that's the science fiction part I'm thinking, where you got this huge army and it's coming again. And imagine being John and seeing these visions and trying to figure out what the heck that there's this lamb. He, he, it's as if he was slain. There's blood. There's a robe dipped in blood. There's a word coming yeah. out of his mouth. And, he, yeah. and it's like, it's, it's, I always think of, um, like Doctor Strange movie, the Doctor Strange movie, or this uh, the background that I have to our, our conversation here, one of your book covers. That sci-fi, colory, multi, you know, purples and greens, and uh -huh. that's that's revelation to me in my mind. It's like this. It's it's a true story. I think it's it's going to come true. I think God's going to do it. But it's this ultimate cosmic dystopian battle where God ultimately ends up winning. Right. And it's, oh, it's excuse crazy. Me. Excuse me. What does dystopian mean? Sorry. Dystopian, so uh, like utopian, a utopia is like everything's perfect. And usually we say utopia right, okay. is a bad thing. All these politicians right. are, are promising a utopia. A dystopia right. is, is the exact opposite. It's, it. it's, and that's really what happens. You know, uh, Russia, the USSR was a dystopia because they promised this utopia. Okay. But it, and, and that's, I love dystopian novels. And maybe it's because I am jaded or whatever, but Philip K. Dick. Those are that's dystopian novels, um, 1984, uh, Brave New World, dystopian novels. Yeah, yeah, those those books are so depressing. <laughs> I They're my favorite. I read, I read 1984, and it's like, oh, and it's not supposed to be happy. It's supposed to be a, a tale. Hey, don't let this happen. Oh, okay, it so is, it's a cautionary tale. Is, yeah, that one is really, really, really. I, I like, 
I like happy, happy, joy, joy. I like, you know, yeah. mindless happiness, you know. Well, I wanted to, okay, so as, so as Christians, we read the Bible and we see there's this meta narrative. There's this a broad narrative, right? This, this overarching theme of creation and then there's fall then there's redemption and then yes. God makes all things new in consummation. And you've yes. always pressed this point home to me that every good story has to have life, death and resurrection. Right. And you would teach me through Jackie Chan movies. We'd watch Jackie Chan, every Jackie Chan movie growing up. We'd watch it. We'd eat our muddy bears. We'd have some popcorn. And you'd always say, Jackie Chan's got to get beat up before he is triumphant. Otherwise, it's not a good story. And that was the problem with Superman back in the day before there's kryptonite and all his weakening, the red sun and all that stuff. Right. If if there's no battle, it's not fun. And so we say some people, yeah, some people would look at the Bible and say, look, it's just another example of that. That story, every you know, it's a good story because it fits that narrative. We would say every other story is a good narrative insofar as it fits the Christian narrative. Because God's yes. story is the story of reality. And if you want to make a good one, it has to resonate with reality. Is that, yes. Does that sound yes. right? Yes. Um, um, what was her name? She wrote the book, Eat, Pray, Love. Um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Gilbert. Okay. okay. She did. She did a TED talk that talked about um, inspiration or the muse, mm. and and it's an amazing story. Uh, she's not a believer. Um, her life is the last kind of life you'd ever want to live, but but she really hits on some universal truths. She said that these people, these these herders in North Africa, would start to dance around the fire, and they would become transcendent. And they would go beyond themselves the way a musician will sometimes play above himself. And they became filled with divine light. And the people would say, ole, ole. And it was a form of saying Allah, because to them, they were saying, God is in you. God has lit you up. And um, so it's my belief that when you come across a story that is so touching or so powerful that it brings tears to your eyes, you're getting close to the heart of God himself. Mm. And he's hidden it in children's stories. He's hidden it in my, in my uh, crazy stories. He's hidden it in nature. But when you get close, you, you, you are close and you reveal the divine. And because we're made in his image, we cannot help but being moved. And so it's mm. my contention. Paul said, whatsoever is good, pure, and you know all those things, Think on these things. And it's my contention that what he's saying is think on Jesus. So you can find beauty in an amazing science fiction story. You can find beauty in a dance. You can find beauty in the birth of your child. Uh, But at the heart of all of it, you'll find the smiling face of Jesus Christ looking back at you. And Mm -hmm. you'll say, oh, it was you, God. I didn't realize that. And he goes, yeah, I was hiding. (laughs) So that's, that's God. He's everywhere. If we have eyes to see. Yeah. Amen, Pops. Well, that's a great spot to, to end on. I'd love to have you back on and talk some more stuff sometime soon. (laughs) That'd Uh, be great. Thanks. uh, Thanks for coming by. This has been Parker's Pensies. And uh, as always, all glory to God.